0: Let's turn to Haggai chapter 2. Last, It's the third to last book in the Old Testament. Haggai <coughs> 2, starting at verse 10. And we'll read to verse 19. This is God's holy word and revelation from Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, starting at verse 10. On the twenty-fourth month of the ni- on the twenty-fourth of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, "Thus says the Lord of hosts: Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread uh, with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil." or any other food, will it become holy? And the priests answered, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priests answered, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap of twenty measures, there would be only ten. And when one came to the, the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there would be only 20. I smote you, and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th month, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded. Consider. Is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It it has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. Let us pray. (coughs) We ask our beloved Lord that you would help us to understand that you would bless this word unto our hearts and minds. That we would not be those who are defiled by touching, by receiving, by delving into what is unclean. But Lord, that you would make us clean. And we know that you can make us clean by that pure and holy blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us to see him and his revelation unto us through this, your holy word. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Blessing and cursing is a theme in this particular text, and we see that that's not only a theme in this text, but it's a theme that follows all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Way back in Genesis, before the fall, we know that Adam and Eve were created in a blessed paradise. Yet, because of their sin... Not only them, but all of their posterity which followed them by an ordinary generation which means every human being ever born except for Jesus Christ became put under the curse. So there was a blessing of paradise and then the curse came because of their sin. In Genesis 6, the world became so um, delved or so consumed with wickedness that God... Promised that he was going to destroy the whole world with water and that only one family would be blessed to be delivered Noah and his family the rest were cursed to a watery death blessing and cursing Uh, Deuteronomy 28 is another classic passage in the Old Testament that talks about blessing and cursing in Revelation um it teaches that the cursed of God will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. But then later on in chapter 21, it talks about the blessing of those who would inherit the earth, a new heavens and a new earth, and that a new Jerusalem would fall down from heaven to earth. Again, from Genesis to Revelation, this book is full of blessings and curses. Today it has a lot to teach us about blessing and curses, Cleanness or defilement, but it also has to teach us about true devotion to God. So Haggai was a prophet who was—he um, gave a very brief prophecy. It's one of the shortest books in all of the Bible, but um, it was something that was effective, brief but effective. He God sent him by the Holy Spirit to preach to the people to challenge them to rebuild the temple. They tried, they started, they laid the foundation. The, the uh, pagan Gentiles in the area um, stopped them. And then they, they put it off for another 14 years. And now it was time for them to begin rebuilding And God sent his man to go and stir things up so that they would rebuild that, that holy temple. And the reason why they were even sent back to Jerusalem, the, the reason why they were not still under oppression in a foreign land, was that God placed it on the heart of King Cyrus, a pagan king, to send them back. God God placed it on King Cyrus' heart to send them back that they would then rebuild. So here it is. He preaches unto them. They receive the preaching and out of gratefulness and reception of the Word of God, they commit themselves to rebuild and in prior verses that we studied already, he says, "I will be with you," and I'm gonna. And we we learned this morning. He says, "My spirit is going to be with you and abide with you," and that he's going to be there to help them in that rebuilding process. Uh, again, uh, God's going to bless them for their obedience. Uh, what's interesting is that it seems like now, uh, starting in, in in verse ten and following, a lot of these verses or almost a reiteration of the beginning, talking about the blessing and the curses, or the the curses of them not being obedient, what he's done to the land. In fact, uh, their land was not really that good, right? I mean, they had mildew and blight, um, this wind here. uh, A lot of what happened to their land was by the hand of God, that God had caused them some cursing because they were not doing what was right. They didn't have their priorities in the right place. But today he's going to talk to him about this blessing and cursing. So the main focus of today's text, in applying it unto us, which what God wants us to do, is that this is God's offer to you for blessing rather than cursing. God offers you blessing rather than cursing or you could say blessing, rather than defilement. God will um, direct us in this as we look at three main points. Um, We'll look at some revealing questions. Secondly, we'll look at some cursed consequences. And then lastly, we'll look at blessed rewards. Let's look at this first main point, some revealing questions. It's like um, starting in verse 1, actually verse 11, um, the Lord was cross-examining the priests in order to give revelation. Starting in verse 11, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest said, No. So the question, I would say, the one truth that we should learn from this is that do you become holy merely by association? Uh, there was a denomination, uh, there was a church that I was a part of, um, and it was their teaching was called federal vision theology. They came out of the PCA, and they would they would say there's what they call objectivity to the covenant. And that's kind of fancy talk there, but I mean what it meant was that if you were in the church and you were a member of the church, you were automatically holy. Now, we know that God's grace, apart from faith, does not save. If you're a part of the church and you do not yourself personally have faith in Jesus Christ, especially for one who's raised in the church, even if you're baptized, as a child who grows up, if you do not receive the faith of your parents and believe in the faith of your parents, you are not automatically made holy by association. Which is the teaching that some would say, oh, they're automatically in the church. Let's assume that they're automatically holy. And here's one of the outworkings of that. That theology went on to say, if someone is raised in the church and they're a member of the church, they don't have to examine themselves whether they're in the faith or not because they would call that morbid introspection. Well, I don't know about you, but I think the Bible teaches us to examine ourselves whether we're in the faith or not. Now, let's just hold our place to Haggai, but I want us to look at... um, Let's look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 and I want you to remember that this is what God calls every Christian to do. Um, Let's start at verse 5. Now for this very (coughs) sorry now for this very reason also applying all diligence in your faith Supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the one who lacks these qualities... Is blind or short sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. This requires introspection. This requires self-examination. This requires the examination of one's own fruit. And you're not made holy just by association. Um, This was something you could say that was going on uh, in the time of Haggai and in the time of uh, um, the Jewish leadership. Very often, what they, what they did was they made an association that we are sons of Abraham. God loves us because we're sons of Abraham. Remember, Jesus said, well, you know what? I'm going to raise up stones to, to praise me if you people will not give me the praise. Uh, Matthew fifteen eight. You don't have to turn there. But he, in Matthew fifteen eight, Jesus cites Isaiah and says, This people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. That requires, that passage should make you think about some self examination. Am I honoring God just with my lips? Or is my heart really with Him? Or is it far from Him? We can apply uh, verses 11 and 12 to our modern day as well. Can't we? I want us to look at this next second major revealing question that he asks in verse 13. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priests answered, It will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Their religious condition affects everything they do. Their unfaithfulness in their their faith, which God gave them, by the Holy Spirit, through the prophets, through the patriarchs, through Moses, if they're unfaithful in their holy faith, God is gonna, God is not going to bless the work of their hands. He's going to curse the work of their hands, and everything they do will be cursed and unclean. And the same goes today, doesn't it? There's one theologian who wrote this. He said, the skeleton of the ruined temple, maybe you, you could imagine then maybe framing up the second temple, Uh, the skeleton of the ruined temple was like a dead body decaying and making everything contaminated. He says, because of religious sin, a people defiled in the Lord's sight, wherein their contagion spreads to secular activity, to agriculture, to wage earning, um, the national economy, and the religious exercise of this people were all def- was all defiled. This contamination, this spread of disease, is something that we'll look at at the next main point. The cursed consequences. Let's look at the cursed consequences in verses fifteen and seventeen. But now, do consider from this day onward before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when I came, to a grain heap of twenty measures, there would be only ten. I'm saying, and when one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there would only be twenty. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. I would say this was the condition. Of the people before they started back at the building process, before they started back with going into committing to building the second temple, this was their state. They were stricken, smitten, and afflicted. You could say um, the agriculture, the wine production, everything was either half or much less than half of what ex- what they were expecting. They went to draw from the wine, and it was. It was as if there was holes shot up in the in the vessels. It was like they had bags with holes and would hold no or like buckets with holes that would hold nothing. And it was all just going away. You can think of today in our technological advances. You think of California and places like that, they have the most technological irrigation system in the world, some of it. But if God does not give rain and they have a terrible drought, I don't care how much they have. They are, their crops are going to perish. And some of California is already like a quasi desert, but it, God can make it like the Sahara if He wants. He can. He can withhold the rain. And He can cause them to have terrible woes if it is His will. Um, my question is this is that when calamity happens, when droughts happen, when blight happens, when God doesn't bless our nation with, in many respects such as this, we should ask ourselves, Lord God, I can't, what is it we've done? We could pray for repentance for our nation. We could pray for the repentance of the churches of our nation. But you notice it's, it's appropriate to ask, is this a judgment because of sin? Now, when we look at the book of Job, every calamity, every problem cannot be contributed to an individual's personal sin. That's the message of Job. You could say a message of Job. You can't just say, that person's suffering. His land is has a blight. His crops are failing. That man is wicked because he must have done something really evil. Now, on the flip side, if the nation or a particular land is perishing and suffering and there's a blight upon the whole region, maybe you know the people of the, the churches of that region really need to consider, hey, we need to repent of our sin and the, the apostasy that we're doing, we need to consider that. I think today's text says that uh, when calamity happens, people should examine themselves. But that's what they didn't do in this text. Look at verse 17 again. When God smote them with the blasting wind, the mildew, the hail, they did not come back to me, declares the Lord. So here's the key. When God gives tribulation, when God gives calamity, blasting wind, hail, storm, whatever it may be, even war, The purpose is repent and come back to the Lord instead of refusing to come back to me, says the Lord. Now, I do believe that calamity comes because of apostasy and a lack of repentance and unfaithfulness. I think the churches of our nation should ask themselves, because of the troubles of our nation, they should ask themselves, how much of of this can be warranted to us. How much of this can be blamed unto us? And I think those nominal Christians who say that they're Christians and who live any way that they want, they should question whether they should repent. If they want to call themselves Christian yet are living like the devil. The liberal gospel ministers especially who want to warp the holy scriptures, deny the virgin birth, even support Abortion and other forms of immorality, and they are have them named upon themselves as gospel minister. They need to consider and repent in dust and ashes, because very well, much of the trials and tribulations that a nation serves is because of those who are called according to His name that they turn away and they commit idolatry and immorality, and that God brings a curse upon the nation. I do think that individual members of churches, if there are churches that are wicked and unbelieving and practicing doctrinal compromise and promoting and enabling immorality, those individual members of those churches should flee. And here's here's a passage where I want us to look at that. Uh, keep your place in Haggai, but also turn to Second Corinthians six fourteen. Second Corinthians six fourteen. Now, I want this is probably not the application you might think of this, but I think this is a faithful application. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. If you're in a church where your minister does not believe that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead... Or that Jesus Christ really was born of a virgin. If you're in a church where someone's teaching that we all evolved from an ape rather than made according to God's image in the garden, I think it's appropriate that you need to just come out of there. You need to come. You need to turn and come out of there and be separate. And I think it's a, that's a good understanding of 2 Corinthians six. 14 and following now looking back at Haggai God calls us God tells us to be those in verse uh, 17 that they are to be willing to turn willing to come back unto him I think the, the, uh, the problem with the Israelites was that God so often called them a stiff-necked people, <laughs> right? I think one. I think there was one passage. I can't think of it. It, it talks about sinews of iron. They had like sinews of iron, like their the muscles in their neck is like iron, or rigid, like a like a piece of stone. And they didn't want to bow the neck. They didn't want to. You could think of why is it a problem to have a stiff neck? One, you don't want to bow your head to the Lord in obedience. Two. You don't want to turn your head away from what is evil. You want to just keep on going ahead in the way of the wicked. (laughs) That's the way I think of it. Um, They're too proud and stubborn to bow the head and to turn, and they're too stubborn to worship the true God. But notice, it's not all about bad news. There's a wonderful, blessed reward for those who repent and believe. Look at uh, verses 18 and 19. Do consider from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree? It has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. Notice that blessings are oftentimes not immediate, right? It doesn't happen right away. Um, I did read a commentary or a, uh, a, a scholar who wrote, and he said that the prophecy here was given likely in the ninth month of the Jewish calendar, and that could have been, like in the winter, where everything they had was in dormant. You know, if you'd have had uh, a vine, fig, uh, what do you call it, a uh, grapevine, it would have been dormant, the leaves would have been off. It wouldn't have been bearing even leaves or fruit. Um, The pomegranate, olive trees, those things would have not been bearing fruit because it was in the dormant season. But then, he's telling them to look because there's a day coming when I will bless you. You have to wait on God's promises. Sometimes it takes time. And I I think of it this way with your children. Um, You're raising covenant youth. Maybe you don't see a lot of fruit sometimes when you, when you see fighting among the siblings or something of that sort. But when you're raising covenant youth and you if you're faithful and you're fertilizing and you're giving nourishment, you can wait and, and hope and pray for that day when they will bear that fruit in the, in the future. Um, again, as I mentioned, uh, I think maybe a stage of dormancy I know sometimes this church seems like it's in a stage of dormancy, right? Uh, it, maybe it's it's kind of like a, <laughs> a little tree that it needs to put on a lot more branches and put out a lot more leaves and put on a lot more fruit. But maybe this church is like that. Maybe it's like that vine that's in the dormant stage that when the spring comes, God's going to help it flourish. I think by faith we can, we can look at this passage and long that God will bring much fruit and that God will bless this church as well. Again, the blessing that's promised unto the people in Haggai's day only came ultimately as they looked forward to Jesus Christ. The people of Haggai's day looked forward to that day of future glory when Jesus Christ would come in as the Prince of Peace into that second temple that they were in the process of building. The blessing is that in Jesus Christ every drop of blood ever spilled on every Jewish altar always pointed unto Jesus Christ and that they were saved by that Lamb who would one day come and we're saved by looking back at the Lamb who's already come. Speaking of that, you have to have one mediator. They were going to build this temple and they were going to offer sacrifices on the second temple altar, but the ultimate mediator could only be Jesus Christ. It wasn't going to be these sacrifices that they were going to offer on the temple, it would only be Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man, Jesus alone. It's not Allah, it's not Buddha. It's not Mary, it's not any saint, it's not your priest, it's not anyone else, but Jesus alone is the one and only mediator. Only His blood will do, only His blood will suffice. He is the only way that we can have that eternal life. So again, God calls you to leave behind what is defiled, what is cursed, and to cling to what is clean and what is blessed, and that is Jesus Christ. Cling to Christ. Again, as we examine those questions and we look at those cursed consequences, we find that full obedience and blessing and reward is found in in faith in Jesus Christ alone. Each of us can only remain in one or two states, either blessing or cursing. Um, I think it's in Deuteronomy 30. God says, He sets before you life and prosperity or death and adversity, blessing or cursing. And, you know, sometimes when you're talking to people and they they don't want to believe in the Lord Jesus, I guess you could put it this way. God offers you either two two things. He either offers, offers you blessing or cursing. Unless you have Jesus Christ, you're going to be. There's going to be a curse. But if you believe and repent and trust in Jesus Christ, you're going to be blessed. It, there's only two alternative. There's only one decision really to make, isn't there? But if you haven't embraced Jesus Christ, the one thing you must do is embrace Him as Lord and Savior. Repent of your sin, and God promises from this day forward, I will bless you. Let's pray. We do ask, our Lord, that You would help us to turn away from the things that are defiled. And Lord, we do pray that You would help many people throughout our nation, Lord, to turn away from what is wicked and to turn and repent and believe and be separate and embrace the holy faith given once unto the saints, even through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Bless Your church, we pray. Bless those who have come and answered the call to worship this evening. Lord, we pray that you would help us to express the wonderful truths of our holy faith to those in our community. Help us, we pray. Give us your grace. And Lord, we do ask that you would bless even us, O Lord. Help us to bear much fruit. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. For our concluding hymn, Let's turn to 291. Oh for a thousand tongues to sing. Let's stand and sing 291.